If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. the United Kingdom, if you want to understand it, actually history is much more important as a formative influence than geography. That was Linda Colley discussing the history of Britain in an interview with our books editor, Matt Elton. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. My name is Rob Attar and I'm the editor of BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good newsagents or you can take out a subscription from anywhere in the world. See historyextra.com forward slash subscribe hyphen today for the latest subscription deals. We also have digital editions available for the iPad, the Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play and Zinio. For details of all of these, head to historyextra.com forward slash digital. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. To kick off this week's episode, here is our website editor, Emma McFarnan, with the latest history news. Unit diaries chronicling the day-by-day operations of regiments during the First World War have been made available online for the first time. The National Archives has published the first batch of diaries in a new online portal as part of its centenary programme. Once complete, the portal will comprise more than 1.5 million pages relating to France and Flanders. 
The domain, titled First World War 100, will open up wartime records previously available only at the National Archive site at Kew in London. You can read more about the online portal by visiting historyextra.com. In other news, a royal chocolate-making kitchen that once catered for Kings William III, George I and George II is to open its doors for the first time in almost 300 years. Recent research uncovered the precise location of the kitchen at Hampton Court Palace, which has for many years been used as a storeroom. The 18th century chocolate kitchen is well preserved, with many of its original fittings, including the stove and furniture, still intact. It will open to the public on the 14th of February. Meanwhile, researchers are examining whether jail or transportation was more effective at preventing reoffending in the 18th and 19th centuries. British criminals convicted at the Old Bailey during this time were jailed, transported to Australia or hanged. Historians are examining the court records of every person convicted at the London courthouse between 1785 and 1875. The team, from the universities of Liverpool, Sheffield, Oxford, Sussex and Tasmania, will then assess how many of those jailed in Britain reoffended. Thanks, Emma. For more history news, don't forget to check out our website, historyextra.com. 2014 could be a pivotal year for the United Kingdom, with Scotland set to vote on independence in September. The current tensions within the UK, as well as its relationship with the rest of the world, are among the themes explored by Princeton University historian Linda Colley in her new book and radio series, which is currently being broadcast in the UK on Radio 4. Linda spoke to our books editor, Matt Elton, about the factors that have shaped centuries of British history and about what the future holds for the country. The series, of course, covers a huge range of topics, um, which we'll hopefully touch on uh, in this interview. I mean, talking about the history of the nation that we are covering, or the nations, to be more accurate, I mean, is it incorrect to see Britain as being an old and stable nation above all others? Goodness, yes. Uh, One of the things I wanted to do was, uh, since the series is partly informational, uh, to give people hopefully a better sense of how the UK in its present state has come about. Uh, So I look at the successive acts of union with Wales and Scotland and Ireland and how the Irish Act of Union came apart between 1916 and 23, uh, so that the United Kingdom we have now is a reduced United Kingdom, only the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, not just Ireland in toto. Because one of the things I've found as I've gone along, um, I, I remember this came up uh, to me in a discussion I was having organising an exhibition at the British Library. I realised that quite a lot of the highly educated and wonderfully expert people around the table didn't actually know the difference between Britain and the United Kingdom. Okay, yes. So part of what I wanted to do was not, was to emphasise the flux of this political unit over time Mm. uh, and to give people a greater familiarity uh, with both the the total but its component parts as well. This is something we'll touch on I think throughout the course of, of the interview but I mean to what extent do we get a sense of people consciously 
um, choosing to construct a national identity? Is it something that people in these countries have always done? I mean, or is it a fairly new thing? I think there are, I mean, there are many levels of identity, of course, at all times. Um, most of us have uh, our identities in a kind of Russian doll situation. We, we put one on top of another. Uh, and there was clearly a strong sense of Englishness, Scottishness, Welshness, um, Irishness, uh, as well as lots of very strong regional distinctions. Uh, how, how did Britishness come about? Well, that was partly what I talked about in Britain's. The acts of union themselves are strategic top-down decision mainly prompted by war or emergency. So you tighten the grip on Wales in the 1530s and 40s to push the Reformation. Uh, you push the Act of Union with Scotland in 1707 because uh, you're fighting a vast war with Louis XIV of France uh, and you're not sure what's going to happen when Queen Anne dies if you've got a separate kingdom up there. You push the Act of Union in 1800-1801 because again you're fighting another war with Napoleon um, and you don't want Ireland being used as a jump-off spot for an invasion of Great Britain. So these are top-down decisions but you then have layers of popular acceptance, enthusiasm, uh, building at different times and at various levels of strength. So one of the things I wanted to do in this book and in this radio series was both talk a bit about the high politics, the high political decisions, but also look at what I call the constitutive stories of identity, how men and women began to superimpose on these political decisions uh, accretions of loyalty and attachment. So you began to say, well, actually, what is distinguishing us is Protestantism. Uh, what is distinguishing us is the sea. Um, we are all ruled now by the same monarch, a monarch who is Protestant. I, I mean, there's all these, or increasingly, we we are islands of liberty as against a, a continent which is dominated by absolutist rule. I'm not saying that these stories are factually true, but they can be very powerful. Mm. That idea of the stories becoming powerful in their own right, kind of not in respect of any truth behind them, is interesting. We'll come back to that later. Um, you also mentioned there about the fact that it's seen as being an island. To what extent has our island story, in inverted commas, being important in kind of constructing these identities? I think islandhood is very important. Uh, it's important in different ways. The fact that what is now the main island, Great Britain, is an island, was enormously helpful to those people very early on, who wanted to push the idea of a political union, because they could say, this has been ordained by the Almighty. Mm. Clearly, we wouldn't have been an island had God intended us to be split up. Um, 
Now, of course, this is utter nonsense. I mean, if one looks at the extended peninsula, the Iberian Peninsula, um, you know, that is split into two, Portugal, Spain. Mm. Um, but these geographical constitutive stories uh, are very powerful, particularly, of course, they become powerful when the Royal Navy really does emerge as the strongest on the globe, because you can then say, not only are we uh, God's chosen island, uh, the new Israel, but we are defended. Mm. Uh, you know, we have our wooden walls. Mm. I mean, your book is really interesting, touches on the idea that actually, even though this kind of notion of a island, a single island, was kind of imposed or kind of spread, actually there were significant differences within this single island or islands. Um, to what extent um, was there more difference between the north and the south of this nation than there were between this nation and other countries? I think that you could make an argument, though it wouldn't be very popular with my Scottish friends, that in many ways the north-south divide in this island, in many ways, not always, has been more influential than the division between England, Wales and Scotland. Given that some of the northern counties, after all, uh, were once attached to Scotland, there's a lot of migration across the border moving into northern England. But it is this, it's partly this huge uh, industrial development uh, that the north parts of Wales, parts of Scotland are all undergoing increasingly from the 18th century uh, and makes their economies uh, and the look of their towns uh, and the way that people live radically different from the more southern agrarian counties. Uh, and you know, if, if you trundle by train uh, from the south of this island to the north, uh, looking through the train windows, um, you can see the north-south divide. And you can also hear uh, differences in people's accents and, and so forth. Sure. I mean, you talk in the book about how the Industrial Revolution played a huge role in kind of strengthening this divide. Um, do you still think... Both strengthening the divide, but also, I think, helping the United Kingdom cohere. Because I do think one of the outcrops of the Industrial Revolution, uh, and of course there's a huge uh, argument among historians about chronology, extent, uh, pace of change, but what industrialization does at its fastest as well as causing a lot of grief, is that it creates a lot of new money and opportunities and jobs in the northern part of this island of Great Britain and also in the northern parts of the island of Ireland. Mm. And all these parts, are uh, they get more money, uh, they suck in, therefore, more workers, um, they have more cultural opportunities. If you look at you know, the great explosion of lavish town halls in Scotland, in the north of England, in Northern Ireland, uh, they're riding on uh, 
a new kind of industrial wealth and all the outcrops. And that means that instead of having the South being obviously the power centre, the money centre, uh, this is slightly counteracted now with okay. industrialization. And I think part of the long historical reason for uh, more fragmentation and angst now is, of course, with the decline of heavy industry and manufacturing, um, a lot of these places in the north uh, have lost this sense that, oh, well, we have something to compensate for us against the south because we've now got a massive concentration of population and wealth in the south and we've got house prices. Mm. Uh, so uh, the island of Great Britain is now even more bottom-heavy. I mean, you mentioned there the variation in experiences, um, and I thought we should talk about some of those experiences for a little bit. Um, I suppose starting with Wales. I mean, to what extent was the Welsh nation successful at rejecting a, like an empire from outside? Wales was um, vulnerable very early in that you know, people are moving into Wales, Anglo-Norman uh, lords and settlers are moving into Wales from at least the 11th century. Uh, then you got uh, the very brutal conquests of Edward I. Um, it's a, I, I, I wanted to, to talk about the castles a bit, which I did in the book and the broadcast, um, partly as a reaction to myself as a child, because uh, I was always being taken on school trips to see these Welsh castles. And I never saw them as instruments of colonisation of Wales. I, I suppose I thought they were there to protect against enemies, but, you know, I didn't... No one explained that the enemies were actually the Welsh yeah. themselves. <laughs> yes, that's a good point. <laughs> um, and you don't... You know, you're not introduced to them as, if you like, monuments of early colonisation. Um, but I think, so I wanted to talk about that, but I also wanted to talk about the way that different Welsh people had reacted to the fact of conquest in different ways at different times. Um, and I talked about these very powerful influential myths that um, the Welsh were the original British uh, and you get um, the great propagandist Geoffrey of Monmouth, who was probably of Breton extraction, uh, putting this over in his history of the kings of Britain and in his books about Merlin and the Arthurian legends, basically saying, you know, uh, the ancient Britons came from Wales. They, uh, it was they who created Britain uh, in the distant past, Britain was united, but you know there was a Welsh element, and Merlin's prophecies show that uh, this will return. Um, there will be a return to this kind of Welsh element, and I think these myths are quite useful uh, for Welsh people. Obviously, if they're articulate uh, and can read and know about this, trying to rationalise the fact of uh, take over conquest because they can say well who's conquering who mm. um, 
perhaps we are now on the way back to Britain, which has Welsh connotations. And of course, the fact that the Tudor dynasty, uh, when it uh, establishes itself on the throne uh, and defeats Richard III, uh, the Tudor dynasty is, is part Welsh uh, in ancestry. Uh, and again, Welsh people, if they so wish, can say, well, you know, the prophecy is coming true. So uh, that was one of the things that intrigued me as, and what I wanted to explain, that some people seem to think that Britishness is imposed from the centre, that it's an invention of the English, which is imposed on these poor, suffering Celtic peoples. Uh, whereas, in fact, I think these ideas are much more complicated. Uh, the Welsh have their own myths and ideas about Britishness, so subsequently do the Scots. Mm. Talking about Scots, to what extent do you think that they too have derived some degree of pleasure in constructing an identity that claims that it is in some way a fundamental part of Britishness? Or have they wanted to see themselves as separate for a fairly long time? I think it's always dependent on which Scots you're talking about. <laughs> but for almost always through, I mean, the, the Treaty of Union, uh, as it was in Scottish parlance, it became the Act of Union of 1707, um, is clearly initially deeply unpopular among uh, some strata of Scots. But then the Scottish economy starts doing very well. Um, you get the flourishing of Edinburgh and the great Scottish universities, the Scottish Enlightenment. So unionism comes to be seen by most um, articulate Scots as, as a good thing, as a way of um, Scotland making waves, mm. that, that there's nothing wrong with union as long as it is a union of equals and that Scots get their share and quite often, frankly, more than their share. Uh, so that even um, Scottish ginger groups, and this goes right up to after the Second World War, uh, that want more for Scotland, they very rarely want to break the union. They ask for a more equal mm -hmm. union. Because, of course, you can argue not only uh, do we get more trade, more job opportunities, more opportunities for migration, but one way of looking at the union is that it's the best way to tame England. Ireland also, I mean, how has the experience differed, differed there? One of the greatest challenges I uh, confronted in writing this book and doing these broadcasts was, of course, the challenge of concision. Uh, how to do the Irish Union and disunion in 15 minutes. What <laughs> chapter? Hello. Um, so uh, that was that. With Ireland, it was a particular challenge, um, which I hope I, I I cope with in the end. And I wanted to strike a balance between uh, explaining the extreme starkness of this relationship which historians like 
Marion Elliott have uh, so brilliantly evoked um, and talking about how crucial it was uh, the way that the Reformation happened, which means that this relationship is going to... It was always going to be different anyway because of the sea. Uh, Ireland is a different island, Mm. but it is the Reformation uh, without being over-deterministic uh, this is is clearly the worm in the bud and so I wanted to get that over but I also wanted to get over how in fact you know it was mixed missed opportunities I mean you could play all sorts of counterfactual games uh, if George III and other conservatives in 1800-1801 had shut up and had the Act of Union gone through with what was originally intended, a clause giving Catholics the same political rights as Protestants in Ireland and all the rest of the UK. Uh, I suspect that would have made quite a considerable difference. Or had Gladstone, which he almost did, got home rule through. Uh, you know, it's, it, it does seem to me, and, and, and I wanted to stress that because I am sympathetic to those revisionist historians of Ireland, uh, classically Roy Foster, um, who wanted to break away from the kind of binary nationalist analysis that, you know, Ireland was always uh, in opposition, it was always going to have to be independent. Uh, I think it's more untidy than that. Thank you. Talking about binary oppositions, um, is it unhelpful, do you think, um, that in kind of popular current discourse, um, the UK is often positioned in opposition to Europe? Do you think the two have always been separate? No. Uh, Clearly, the sea matters. But the sea, as, again, scholars have increasingly been stressing, uh, before the coming of the train, the the sea is the fastest way to travel. Uh, I mean, it's faster if the winds are right than going by horseback. So um, it's not difficult to pop over to Holland or Scandinavia or France, depending on which part of the island of Great Britain or Ireland you're at. But it's also uh, to talk about Great Britain and Europe as though these are different um, would have made no sense for large parts of history. And in fact, again, a Google engram is very useful. If you look at how that phrase, Britain and Europe, it starts shooting up from the 1960s, 1970s. uh, And it's been pushed, obviously, by the media. And people now say it instinctively. uh, Whereas I think earlier people would have said Britain and continental Europe or something like that. but the dynastic links are so powerful. Mm. Uh, and you know, one of the points I make in the book, that had Victoria been instead King Victor, 
Britain would have continued to be had a German offshoot because of the Hanoverian connection, um, which would have been really interesting. And again, one wants to play counterfactual games and think, well, what would have happened with Bismarck and the unification of Germany, yeah. not to mention the First and the Second World War, if Hanover had still been attached to mm. the British crown. How do you think the having of empire affected how Britain came to see itself? And do you think that it still affects how the country sees itself? There is an argument, which I don't absolutely buy, that, there, that this story is entirely about empire, that first of all, England colonised Wales, Scotland and Ireland, and then it moved on to the outer empire. Uh, and some post-colonial scholars uh, have pushed this argument very strongly. I think it's, it's, it, it's very seductive and it sounds too neat, but it's, it's wrong in, in all sorts of ways. But I think the empire is very important. It doesn't mean that people know much about the empire. There's a, a famous questionnaire done uh, by some branch of the British government. I think it's the colonial office in the late 1940s. Um, and they, they do questionnaires and they ask ordinary British citizens um, about the empire and what it is. And a huge number of people couldn't name a single colony. Indeed, one man thought that Lincolnshire was a colony. <laughs> when we say that the empire was important, it's not important in the sense that you know people are obsessing with it, know a lot about it. Uh, clearly, a lot of people don't know a lot about it. But why is it important nonetheless, whether they know about it or not? Um, it's important as a uh, source of emigration, uh, particularly in the 19th and the early 20th century, uh, this notion of a greater Britain across the seas, uh, in which, again, some people hope that the United States will ultimately be included. And I thought it was very interested in, interesting in this recent blow-up about security and listening in and spying. Who are the five uh, groups of countries that have an agreement not to spy on each other while spying on everybody else? It's the UK, it's the US, it's Australia, it's New Zealand, and it's Canada. Here is actually a kind of Greater Britain still. Uh, these, um, you know, these settlement empires across the globe still having implications. And I thought that was really, really interesting. Um, and of course, it's interesting that the British are much more eager to share secrets with them than they are with their continental European partners. But that's another matter. Um, so I think as a source of emigration, arguably as a source of wealth, though how much money the British, all the British actually make out of empire is, I think, a big dispute. I think it's difficult to get this over in a way that current generations would see as acceptable or pertinent. But I think part of post-war malaise, to an extent that there has been, in the UK 
is perhaps the way that attitudes to empire have changed so radically in the past couple of generations that uh, I think if you ask most people um, in 1945 or even uh, in 1960 about the British Empire, um, probably most of them would have thought it was a good thing uh, that Britain had spread decency, constitutional government, hospitals, um, the BBC, you know, textbooks all around the globe. And, and this was us exporting our values in a, in a way that mattered and was benign. Um, now, obviously, that was always, always was a very selective view of empire, but I think it was quite a powerful view of empire. Uh, whereas now, of course, uh, even if people do still secretly think that, they can't say it. So that means that there's a sort of big question mark over that very large part of British experience in the past. Mm, fantastic. Um, we'll talk now about that malaise. Um, which, of course, is a big kind of underpinning uh, theme of the book, I suppose. Um, how do you think the current crisis in terms of identity um, compares to previous troubles or worries about national identity? I don't think I'd use the word crisis simply because it, it's in the newspapers almost every headline. You know, everything is a crisis. So um, I, I don't think I would call it a crisis. And of course it could be, and I will raise this as a possibility at the beginning of the book, though I couldn't do it in the radio series. It could be that what we need to do with the UK is actually put it in a much, much larger context, that all states across the globe are having to react to all sorts of shifting situations. There is globalisation, whatever you deem that to be. There's a growing number of supranational organisations that have power, be it the EU or NATO or various trading alliances. So you could argue that around the world nations or state nations, which I think is what the UK is, would have to be adjusting anyway. Uh, and I think it's important not just to treat the UK as though it's some kind of um, sui generis basket case. Uh, and I don't, I don't number myself among those who see the breakup of Britain as something preordained. I mean, perhaps Britain will stop breaking up after mm. the vote next September. I don't know. Nobody else knows. Uh, but I don't think we should see it as, as preordained. Uh, what I do think is that a lot of the old constitutive stories have uh, gone. I think that probably, to this extent, the monarchy has been terribly important. The fact that Elizabeth II has reigned for so long has, I suspect, been enormously important in creating um, an illusion of stability 
And when she goes, uh, I suspect that will have more impact than, you know, not just grief at the death of the sovereign, but I do think the fact that she has been on the throne for so long has, for example, helped probably many of her subjects cope with the great loss of empire, all these other post-war changes that have happened. Um, So I think that a lot of old clues and stories and networks have gone. I also think that um, there have been all sorts of new challenges, obviously. Uh, the, the demographic uh, makeup of the UK is radically different from what it was in 1945. Uh, there are all sorts of new challenges. Um, and I think what does need attention is this. I call the United Kingdom a state nation quite deliberately. It is not and never has been a nation state merely because you've got Ireland or part of Ireland and Scotland and Wales and England. But a a state nation has to operate at two levels. At one level, its government has to acknowledge the quasi-autonomy and distinction and rights of the component parts. Because there's lots of state nations. I mean, India is a state nation, China is, Spain is. They're composite states, if you like. So you have to acknowledge and recognise the component parts. But you've also got to have a vision of the whole. And that, I think, is what is in severe need of repair. Uh, We've got all these sort of glib phrases um, by those who oppose uh, Scottish nationalism. Better together. Well, perhaps we are, but why? Um, They never say, other than trotting out figures about the economy and so forth, which doesn't really, which is important, but doesn't keep people warm and cosy. So we have a union still, but we don't really have an idea of unionism. Why the United Kingdom? And I think various things could be done about that. I don't have any illusions about a written constitution, but I do think a written constitution might be one way of helping people sort out if this is still pertinent, a new kind of unionism. Um, and if not a written constitution, well, why not a charter of UK rights or something? Yes, some kind of text. Mm. It's interesting, and you touched on this in the book, that um, England does not have its own assembly. Yeah. Do you think that's been a contributing factor to these concerns, in England at least? Yes, and I think, uh, it, I think the situation will not stand. Uh, we saw yesterday with the decision uh, to pull shipbuilding out of Portsmouth and uh, keep it in Scotland. Now, that may indeed have been a purely commercial and economic decision. But I think those kind of decisions, as they accumulate, are going to build up a lot of English resentment. And I think this is part of what's feeding into UK. That, you know, why should Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland have their own representative assembly, but England not? 
And this is dangerous at two levels. First, it's dangerous at the level of building up resentment among some uh, groups of English people. But also it runs the obvious danger that it makes the Westminster Parliament seem by default an English Parliament. And if you want Westminster to seem the UK Parliament, you don't want that to happen. So I think you need a more explicitly federal system where the four parts of the UK each have their own assembly, and then you have the Westminster Parliament as, uh, if you like, the overarching stone, uh, looking at issues uh, which the local parliaments uh, aren't looking at, like defence policy and overall climate control and all that sort of thing. And I should say that these kind of schemes were being intensively discussed really between the 1860s and the First World War and even after. Uh, and I think it's really only the two world wars and the great crisis that they represented and the, the needs uh, and the backwash of those wars that, that put a halt to a lot of ideas of reorganising the UK, which we are now revisiting. Okay, fantastic. I mean, you touched on globalisation. Do you think in a world of Twitter and Facebook and people being connected in ways outside of the traditional state-nation or nation-state, do you think those state-nations are still necessary? Are they still important? I suppose this would be a glib and fatuous answer. They're important if people feel they're important. Frankly, it doesn't matter to me because I live a privileged and itinerant life. But I think for many people, it is important. Uh, But, of course, it will have to be important in terms increasingly of a... Russian doll way of looking at your identity. So you say, I am in the EU, uh, I am Welsh, I'm also British, uh, I belong to the Climate Control Collective, uh, I am in this global union, whatever. Um, And getting people to to think in those kind of Russian doll uh, identities where, where they fit perhaps not entirely comfortably, but they do fit together, is probably important. But I think what you can't do, if if you are going to have the UK, then it has to be talked about and an idea of it has to be promulgated. Okay. What's been the thing that surprised you most in the course of researching this? I suppose what intrigued me most, as distinct from surprised me, was when I decided that because I had such limited time and space, I had to have a core and it would be acts of union. Uh, And this would be my theme. Uh, Just how many different schemes for different kinds of union uh, there have been. Um, These... And, and, and again, these islands are not unique in that respect. We, but I think particularly because of the residual influence of island notions, uh, there is this lingering sense that the boundaries here were always clear. 
Whereas if you look at these umpteen schemes for different kinds of union, transatlantic union, greater British union uh, schemes in the 1650s to bring uh, Britain together with Holland, something which is actually achieved between 1688 and 1714, uh, the connections with Hanover, um, Albert and Victoria's dream that... um, courtesy of their eldest daughter marrying uh, the German Kaiser um, briefly, uh, that there will be a a deeper Anglo-German union. There's all these... So you get the sense of the plasticity of this polity and the many, many different ideas, different ideas people have had about how it should position itself, what its contents are, and who it should link itself up with. What message or messages would you like readers and listeners to go away from this with? I wouldn't presume to say there's any monolithic message. I hope they will come away with a greater recognition that history really does matter in understanding these current issues which are actually a manifestation of tensions and debates that have surfaced over the centuries at different times Uh, and instead of thinking of this just as a a crisis situation that has emerged out of blue uh, and is a response to particular irritants it is to a degree but um, history does help and if you think of the United Kingdom if you want to understand it actually history is much more important as a formative influence than geography that was Lindy Colley her series Acts of Union and Disunion is currently being broadcast on Radio 4 and you can listen to episodes that you've missed on the iPlayer radio Her accompanying book, with the same title as the series, has recently been published by Profile. You can read more of Matt's interview with Linda in our January issue, which is on sale now. Also in this month's magazine, we're assessing the reputation of Charles I, we're finding out about the challenges facing Britain in 1914, and discovering how the Romans like to live it up. Pick up your copy now in any good newsagent or in one of our digital formats. Now, just before we go, I'd like to remind you that BBC History magazine is holding two-day events in Bristol's M-Shed on the weekend of the 15th and 16th of March. We begin with a Vikings Day on the Saturday and follow that with a First World War event on the Sunday. In each case, you'll get the chance to hear talks from a range of expert historians and enjoy a buffet lunch. For more information and tickets for these events, please visit historyextra.com forward slash events. Well, that's almost all for this week. Do get in touch with your views on podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out some of your messages in future episodes. And you can also keep in touch with us on social media. We're on Twitter at History Extra and of course we're on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash History Extra. Plus do make sure to visit our website, historyextra.com where you'll find history news, quizzes, blogs, image galleries, features and more. 
Next week, we'll be joined by Jeremy Paxman to talk about his upcoming series on the First World War. Meanwhile, Miles Russell will be guiding us around a remarkable Roman building. Make sure to join us for that. This History Extra podcast was recorded on location in London and produced by Jack Fletcher. Collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.